directly on Daniel. I told you I was going to do it every week, and I really am. Picking up where we left off last week, Daniel and his buddies have been uh, brought into exile into the Babylonian Empire. They're in captivity. In Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, enrolls these boys in a three-year program at the notoriously pagan University of Babylon. The king's goal is assimilation, uh, to take Israel's best and brightest, to indoctrinate them, and to use them to build the empire that he wants to build. Because God is the one who's really in control of the story, not Nebuchadnezzar, God gives Daniel and his friends the wisdom, the understanding, the skill necessary to impress the king. And so the king decides to bring the boys on his payroll. According to chapter two, if you were here last week, you'll recall that tension mounts as the king has a dream that's got him in a cold sweat. He's deeply disturbed by the fact that he has this divine vision that he can't seem to make sense of. And so he, he brings his group of diviners, his dream team in to get their help. But they're incapable of actually helping the king. In fact, in their own words, only the gods can reveal such things and the gods don't dwell with flesh. Which is just another way of saying, I know with certainty things about my God or gods, though they don't interact with human beings in any capacity. That's the futility of pagan religion. It's irrational. And here's why. I said this last week, without divine revelation, we're left with nothing more than human speculation. But here's the beauty of Daniel chapter two. Daniel's God, in contrast to the gods of pagan religion, is a God who makes known. He's a God who reveals himself to us. He's a God who not only dwelt with flesh, but became flesh. That you can know God. You can know what God is like. We're not left to our own speculative thoughts. We don't have to guess about what God is like. We're told that Daniel's God, the God who makes known, reveals the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar bows at the feet of Daniel and declares the excellencies of Daniel's God. You'll see this throughout the, the course of this book of the Bible. The tables continually are turned. The curtain closes on Daniel chapter 2 with Daniel and his friends given positions of authority throughout the kingdom. And now as the curtain opens on Daniel chapter 3, the camera moves away from Daniel and zooms in on his three buddies. And it's unquestionably the most intense moment in this divine drama thus far. So with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 3. That's where we'll be this, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or maybe have a, an interpretation that's difficult to understand, you can take that Bible with you for free as the churches give to you. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, thank you for what you're already doing in and through us as we engage this particular book of the Bible that... Many of us are familiar with parts of, but maybe not the whole. God, I do pray that you would work in our hearts uh, to help us to grab hold of your character, your promises, the hope that's found in you. God, I pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit and the wisdom of uh, the family of God that you've surrounded us with to navigate cultural waters for your glory. I pray that you would help us to see that even in the midst of the most mundane seasons of life, that you have great purpose in where you have us and what you're calling us to. This morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to release our white-knuckled grip on other rescuers, other deliverers that we turn to other than 
you, Jesus. I pray that all those contingencies that we attach to faith, God, if you do this, then I'll trust you. That you'd help us to let go of those contingencies and to put our trust in you no matter where the story goes. Simply because you're that good. Because you are enough. Would you do those things, Holy Spirit, only you can do them. We lift these things up in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, to you, Father. Amen. All right, no intro this week. We're just going to dive right in because we've got a lot of ground to cover. And my guess would be that many of you have had a a rough glance, a pass at this story before. As you pick up in verse 1, this is how the story begins. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the presence of Babylon. Okay, so you've got this massive statue as you jump into chapter 3, right off the bat, immediately meant to remind us of last week's passage. If you recall, in the dream in chapter 2, Babylon and its fearless leader, Nebuchadnezzar, were represented by the head of gold. And now you have Nebuchadnezzar erecting an entire statue of gold. This image itself uh, was called a colossus which is a great name. I think there's a shark named Colossus out there, which is just awesome. Like there are very few words that are better than that. It's called a Colossus. 90 feet high this statue was, nine stories in height, nine feet wide. Just to give you a little bit of an idea of how big that is, Nero had an image like this that was 110 feet high and it required 24 elephants to move it. The Statue of Liberty is 152 feet high. So that kind of gives you an idea. 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. You can just imagine the awe, the allegiance that this image would invoke. This is an image that demands a bowing down to. And here's the deal. We we don't know if this is an image of Nebuchadnezzar or of his God. But what we do know is that nine times in this chapter, nine times in this chapter, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar set up the image. So even if the statue is of his God, we all know whose power is being declared here. In fact, Ian Duguid in his commentary says this. He says, in contrast to Daniel's confession that it was the God of heaven who set up kings and deposed them, the statue was Nebuchadnezzar's defiant declaration that as king, he could set up gods for his people to worship. Another clue that points to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar in creating the statue is declaring his own power, his own glory, is that the Babylonian plain, if you recall, is the place where the Tower of Babel was established in Genesis chapter 11. You remember that story? Let's unite under the same cause of self-glory. Let's build a stairway to heaven and make a name for ourselves. Now here in Daniel chapter 3, we find Nebuchadnezzar erecting a massive towering image on the Babylonian plain. He's doing it all over again. He's he's seeking to unite a people under the banner of his own glory and power, which is why he calls for the most important and influential people throughout the empire. Verse 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, you got to work out, take some deep breaths to get through this particular chapter of the Bible. It's a lot of repetition, right? 
But there's a reason for that. It's meant to, to drive at the impressive nature of this image and of this gathering of people. Everyone who's anyone is at this party. Verse 4 goes on to say, And the herald proclaimed aloud. So you can just picture this kind of dun da 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 The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Again, you have these echoes of Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. O peoples, nations, and languages. Nebuchadnezzar is out to reverse the effects of what happened in Babylon in Genesis chapter 11. To bring every tribe, tongue, and nation together in allegiance to the king and his glorious statue of gold. And he's willing to go so far as to kill in order to establish this kind of unity in the name of self-glory and power. Whoever refuses to bend their knee to me and to my statue will be thrown into a blazing, fiery furnace. What would you do? I mean, this presents a real ethical dilemma, a real ethical conflict for most of us in this room. Not so for most people in the ancient Near East at this time. Uh, in fact, most people were polytheists. Most people had a pantheon of gods. And so what Nebuchadnezzar was asking is, hey, just add one more god to your pantheon. The king's request presents no real ethical dilemma for the Babylonians, but it does for the Judeans. Because if you recall, at Mount Sinai, when God gave the, first, uh, the Ten Commandments, the first of those commandments was what? You shall have no other gods before me. And, and that's not God saying, uh, hey, you can have other gods as long as you keep me first. That, that phrase, before me, you shall have no other gods before me, that, that's not the language of some sort of ranking system. Before me literally means before my face. In other words, God is saying, worshiping other gods, you may as well be insulting me to my face. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says it this way, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God, monotheism, not many gods. For those who hate the exiled Judeans here on the Babylonian plain, chapter 3 presents a glorious opportunity to get rid of all of them. For the Babylonians, no worries. We'll just add one more God to our pantheon, which is why verse 7 tells us, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music... All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Here again, you have this repetition. The repetition of all these glorious instruments which drives at, at the glory of the image and the gathering itself. You have this glorious moment of, of pomp and circumstance. Back in May, I, I finished up a, a master's program in biblical studies and so uh, I, I went down to Orlando for the graduation ceremony, which was held uh, in a place called St. Andrew's Chapel. There's a picture of it up on the screen. You kind of see, I mean, it's, it looks like something that you would see uh, in the hills of Scotland. You know, just kind of this old European tabernacle. And in fact, the inside, this is a picture of the, the service itself, the graduation ceremony. You can kind of see just some of the intricacies um, of the the working of the pillars and 
the lights and the stained glass windows. And as the ceremony started off, a group of bagpipers walked in from the back of the room just playing what sounded like some old Scottish hymn. And, and from the start of this ceremony, I just got the feeling that something big is going on here. Like This is kind of a big deal. They want us to feel the weight of the reality that uh, for many of us, if we haven't already, we're venturing out into cultural waters for the glory of God, which is a great privilege, honor, and responsibility. They wanted us to feel the weight of that, the significance of that. I would imagine that that's what this scene is like on the Babylonian plain. You have this mass majority of people falling on their faces in worship as all of these instruments are being laid to the glory of Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. And in fact, it's normal to fall on your knees in worship in this moment. It's abnormal to refuse to do so. But apparently, a group of Jews decide to stand their ground. And so we're told, verse 8, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We don't really know where Daniel is at at this point in the story. I mean, he could be off on a mission for the king. The text doesn't really answer that question. And, And it's not really that critical to the narrative, to be honest with you whether it's Daniel on the chopping block or his friends. In chapter 3, it happens to be his friends. Later on, we'll see in chapter 6 that it's Daniel himself. Likely motivated by jealousy, you you have this group of the the king's diviners who decide to tattletale on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can tell there's a jealousy there um, because they they throw out this language of, uh, you know, king, you've appointed them over the affairs. Kind of a, we should be doing that, but these guys that you brought in Uh, from exile uh, out of Judea, out of Jerusalem, have taken our jobs from us. And they won't even bow down to your gods. Nebuchadnezzar is a proud man, and these guys are pretty smart, and so they, they push his button. They go after the pride button. Your gods, the statue that you set up, king. Shocker of the century, Nebuchadnezzar has one of his fits of anger. Verse 13, we're told, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He doesn't even give them a chance to respond, does he? Verse 15, Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And this is a critical statement that comes out of this man's mouth in chapter 3. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Why, Nebuchadnezzar, What selective memory you have. 
Did you forget about the God who reveals mysteries in chapter 2? Or perhaps you think God is wise, he's able to reveal things like that, but maybe you think he's lacking in power. But let's not be too hard on Nebuchadnezzar, right? Because God brings us through particular moments of hardship in life, and oh, how easily we forget the next time we engage something that's difficult that he is capable of rescue. This is an intense moment. You're meant to feel this. An entire band of musicians is being summoned to play in order to see how these three boys who have been singled out will respond in this moment. What will they do? Again, what would you do? Verse 16 tells us this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, I love this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, critical word in this chapter, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three boys are committed to faithfulness, even if it ends badly for them. They, they know that their God is fully able to deliver them. But their faith, and listen to this, this is critical. Their faith is not contingent upon rescue from the blazing furnace. They, they could have declared, you know what, let's just do this, guys. Let's just, let's bow down physically, but let's not bow with our hearts. What do you say? Because if we do that, we can live to fight another day in this pagan wasteland. So easy to sell out. But not on this day. By God's grace, these boys recognize that fidelity to God is their greatest act of service. In some sense, the outcome really doesn't matter, does it? I mean, I believe in the, in the full authority and sufficiency, necessity, inerrancy of Scripture. I believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God. So it's really strange for me to say this. But, but you could almost end this chapter right here and kind of put us to the test. In some sense, it doesn't matter how this story ends. What ultimately matters is that this is a God worth living for or dying for. As Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It doesn't matter what you do to us. Either way, we get God. May he be glorified through our deliverance or through our death. Either way, we will not bow. What a drastic contrast to a world filled with professing Christians whose faith is contingent. Jesus, if you give me blank, I'll follow you. Jesus, if you rescue me from blank, I'll follow you. Jesus, as long as this thing or that thing doesn't come unraveled for me, I'll follow you. When Jesus fails to come through, oh, how many walk away an epidemic here in the south sure I want Jesus I want him to write the check for my idols sure I want Jesus I want him to be the means to getting my hands on my functional saviors which are more valuable to me than him sure I'm down with Jesus as long as I can manipulate him like a puppet now no one would actually vocalize things like that right we have tact that's a thing but oh how often do we functionally live our lives that way. So 
million-dollar question, how, how do you know? How do you know if that's your propensity? I think one question we could ask ourselves is this. Do I wave my fists in the face of the Almighty when things don't go according to my plan? Because if so, it's likely that you bought into the lie that you can put God in your debt. Let me say this loud and clear this morning. This is critical. Jesus will not write the check for our idols. Jesus will not be the stepping stone to those things that we consider to be more valuable than him. I think we have to wrestle with the question as we look at Daniel chapter 3. Is my faith contingent on how the story plays out? Or, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have I had my eyes open to a God glorious enough to worship no matter where the story goes? Walter Luthi in his commentary says this. He says that there are three men who do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. The miracle of the confessing church. That the three were not devoured by the fire is no greater miracle. Suppose the fiery furnace had consumed them. The real miracle would have happened just the same. If these men died in martyrdom, Daniel chapter 3 would be just as glorious. You see that, right? That Daniel's three friends have seen the beauty, the glory, the splendor, the wonder of the one true God. A God worthy of glad submission. And so they stand their ground. Even if we're consumed by the fire and the flame, we will not bow. How do you think the king feels about that response? Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. He needs to take an anger management class, right? The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. I don't know about you. I, I love literature. From a literary standpoint, notice what's happening here. With the increased heat of Nebuchadnezzar's fury comes the increased heat of the furnace itself. It's as if his face is getting redder by the moment and so is the furnace. Verse 20, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. That those who obey Nebuchadnezzar's command so that they might live, well, they die. But of course, so do Daniel's three buddies, right? In the words of Lee Corso, because it is college football season, not so fast, my friend. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Okay, notice the magnitude of what comes out of this man's mouth. From Nebuchadnezzar's lips just 10 verses prior, 
And who is the God who will deliver out of my hands? The, the king is completely baffled in this moment. My, how the tables have turned. Those who obey Nebuchadnezzar's command are incinerated in a blink. Meanwhile, those condemned by the king actually live. Reminds me of Jesus' famous words. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. Only God has the right to proclaim, Deuteronomy 32, 39, there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Those are not Nebuchadnezzar's words to throw around. The God of Israel is the only true sovereign, the only true deliverer. So, so what about that fourth man walking around in the midst of the fire? Some believe that this is what you would call theologically a Christophany a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And this is going to sound a little crazy, especially from a church that champions Jesus so much. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We're all about Jesus. We're always about Jesus. But I'm not convinced that we can go so far as to say that Jesus is the fourth person in that furnace. Um, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he simply declares that there's a divine being, what he later declares to be an angel, Probably not good to base our theology on a pagan king, so we move forward. From a Jewish perspective, the Jews would have connected the dots to the angel of Yahweh, uh, who was present at the burning bush, who led the Israelites through the wilderness. From our perspective, we know biblically that the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament is always separate from Yahweh, but at the same time closely identified with Yahweh. And so you see the angel of Yahweh in the burning bush, and yet we're told that God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. So there's this close association. The waters are a little muddy. The fourth person in the furnace could be an angel. But it could also be a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. We just don't know. Scholars disagree on that one. But here's what we do know. Regardless, we know that this is a physical demonstration of God's presence with his people in the midst of their distress. Emmanuel, God with us which ultimately does point us to Jesus. Verse 26, the story goes on. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. You have this moment where all of these influential people had just bent their knee to false gods. It had just happened. And now they get a glimpse of the one true God in all of his power and glory. I love verse 27. No smell of fire. You ever been to a bonfire? Right, we're coming up on the fall season. I, I always wear clothes that I don't intend to get a second wear out of. I don't know if you're like me, men, but I wear my jeans a few times before I throw them in the wash. I do that. Some of you do it too. You're guilty. But I, I, so I don't, I don't wear clothes to a bonfire if I hope to get a second wear out of those bad boys. You can stand 10 feet away from a bonfire and you're going to smell like it when you leave the place. Meanwhile, these guys come out of a blazing furnace so hot that it just incinerated a handful of the king's men. 
and no smell of smoke. This is a declaration of the comprehensive nature of God's deliverance and salvation. In verse 28, the story comes to a close in this way. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. From certain death to a pay raise. Similar to chapter 2, we don't get any indication that Nebuchadnezzar is converted here. In fact, he uses the language of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He uses the language of their own God. He's not quite at a place where he's willing to declare, my Lord and my God. But he does make a declaration about God's power. In verse 2, it was the declaration of God's ability to reveal all mysteries. And now here in chapter 3, he declares that there is no other God who can rescue like Yahweh. The man who had posed the question just a few verses earlier, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is now the man who declares there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Yet another reminder that our God reigns. Our God is not sweating it from his throne in the heavenlies. He is at control. He is, he is at the helm no matter how things may appear. And so I think the question for us coming out of a passage like this is very simply, so what? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not anticipating when I wake up tomorrow that there's a high likelihood that I'm going to face martyrdom. I mean, is it possible? Sure, it's possible. But highly likely, I doubt it. Is there anything in this story for us? Let me just throw out a couple of things. Number one, though we may not be commanded to publicize our love for pagan gods, we will be faced with a growing expectation that we privatize our love for Jesus. Okay, you, you got Christian coaches being fired uh, for praying before games. If teachers being told not to publicly declare their faith in the context of the classroom. You have Christianity being declared the one narrow-minded religion on all of planet Earth. And, and this is not a, a call to be harsh or abrasive. It, it's simply a reminder that we must be a people of humble confidence, a people who are not afraid to declare the excellencies of our God and his gospel, even when the masses are bowing down to golden statues, even when we feel like we're in the minority. Another critical thing to grasp from Daniel chapter 3. Though we may not be tempted to bow down to golden images, we will be faced with the temptation to bow down to functional saviors who promise to deliver us from our personal hells. We, we all have personal hells. And we, we all uh, look to functional saviors at, at uh, certain times in our lives to rescue us from those personal hells. For most of us, our personal hell is not a fiery furnace. It's something far more subtle. Most of us are not experiencing the daily temptation to bow down to, to little golden Buddha statues. And that's probably not your reality. 
For most of us, the daily temptation is to bow down to money or sex or family or career or a love interest and on and on we could go. Things that promise to bless us if we bow to them and to curse us if we don't. I'll give you an example or two. If loneliness is your personal hell, the next love interest can easily become a functional savior that you put your hope in to deliver you from that personal hell. If an empty bank account is your personal hell, then money can easily become a functional savior that you turn to and put your hope in to deliver you from that personal hell. If body image is your personal hell, diet and exercise can easily become the next functional savior that you put your trust in and hope in to deliver you from that personal hell. Do you see how it works? We're talking about typically good things that we make ultimate things and put our trust and hope in to save us, to deliver us. We may not find ourselves bowing down to golden Buddhas, but that doesn't mean that our hearts aren't captivated by other deliverers, by other rescuers. Coming back to the point I made earlier, nine times in this chapter, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar sets up this golden image. He made the image, according to verse 15. I mentioned that that the repetition of that language is meant to help us uh, see the king's declaration of self-glory and power. It's the great Babylonian king who, who set up, who made the golden image. Isn't Nebuchadnezzar glorious? But it's not just a declaration of Nebuchadnezzar's power. It's a declaration of the powerlessness of his gods. Again, verse 15 says uh, that Nebuchadnezzar declares, Worship the image that I have made. How absurd to worship something that a human being made as if it were a god. That's folly. And so is our worship of created things rather than creator God too. And so I think a critical question for us to wrestle with coming out of Daniel chapter 3 is, what functional saviors might the Holy Spirit be calling me to stop bowing down to this morning? And then lastly, though we may not face the flames of a fiery furnace, we will be faced with moments of real suffering. Suffering is not an if. There's no one exempt from that. It doesn't get any clearer than Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 Paul says, for it has been granted, as if it were a gift. That's weird language. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That becoming a Christian doesn't eliminate pain and suffering from our lives. If someone told you that to get you to pray a prayer and sign some conversion card, they lied to you. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is that in the midst of your suffering, there is much to gain. That going through the difficult seasons in life actually grows us in character. It conforms us more into the image of Jesus. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, it weeds out the religious moralists. Those who wave their fists at the Almighty thinking they can put God in their debt. Religion says I can earn favor with God and throw it in his face when bad things go my way and he doesn't deliver. The gospel says, God owes me nothing, but he gave me his son. And so if everything were stripped away from me two seconds from now, I win because I get Jesus. You could say it this way. Suffering is never punitive for the Christian because Christ became our curse. It's always purifying. God is at work through your suffering to make you more like Jesus. Not only that, suffering actually increases intimacy with God. I don't know about you, but... 
when things are all going well in my life, those aren't typically the moments that I find myself most deeply tethered to Jesus. It's usually when something comes unraveled and I find that I'm deeply dependent on him, whether he delivers me or not, that he's with me in it. And then lastly, suffering provides an opportunity to bring great glory to God in a way that other seasons of life just don't. Matt Chandler, who's the president of our church planting network, the Acts 29 network, a few years ago, some of you may remember this, he was diagnosed with brain cancer. And it was pretty quick. Um, he went into the doctor's office thinking that he was going to have some options, and he came out with the declaration, we got to open up your head immediately and get in there. This thing is spreading and growing like wildfire. We've got to do something about it. And so he made a video. You can actually look it up on YouTube when you leave today. And part of that video, uh, he makes this declaration. He says, and this is on the eve of, of his having his head opened to remove a cancerous tumor on his right frontal lobe. He says this, there's this part of me that's so grateful that the Lord counted me worthy for this. Now, in an area where it's not a big win, everything's not going all according to plan, I get to show that he's enough. I would love to be a 70-year-old man drinking coffee. I would love to walk my daughter down the aisle. I would love to see my boy turn into the athlete I never was. But none of those things is better than him. Sounds a lot like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, doesn't it? You can throw us in the, the blazing fire of your wrath, Nebuchadnezzar, but we will not bow. Our God is enough. Whether you deliver us or not, his grace is sufficient. You think there weren't a few converts on the Babylonian plain that day? That'll preach in a way that a lot of things won't. I could say it this way. Your moments of suffering are perhaps the greatest opportunities you'll ever have to declare the excellencies of your king. Don't waste your moments of hardship. Don't waste your moments of pain. Use them, leverage them for the glory of God. Now, as we close this morning, I don't, I don't know about you, but I find myself personally fumbling my way through the Christian life most days. There are days that I walk in confident humility, unashamed and unafraid to declare my love for Jesus. But, but there are also days that I'm a little more cowardly, that I experience the nudge of the Holy Spirit and I ignore the Holy Spirit out of fear. There are days that I pledge allegiance to Jesus as king, as my only true hope for rescue, for deliverance. And there are other days where I turn to functional saviors that I trust to deliver me from my own personal hells. Trusting in the functional savior of money to deliver me from the personal hell of a low bank balance. Trusting in the functional savior of ministry to deliver me from the personal hell of a wasted life. And on and on I could go. There are days that I go through hardship well for the glory of God, viewing the difficulties of life through a gospel lens. And, and there are other days that, that I suffer poorly. Days that I wave my fist in the face of the Almighty because I've bought into the lie that I can actually put God in my debt. Days that I'd rather be less intimate with God if it means dodging the suffering. Days that I'd be okay if there were a few less converts as long as I didn't have to go through the hardship that pointed those people to Jesus. I don't know if you figured this out yet or not, but I am not your savior. 
I am a train wreck of a man trying to point you to a sufficient Jesus. Thanks be to Christ who could have privatized his ministry in order to escape the cross. Yet he declared with the fullness of grace and truth the beauty of the gospel. And if you're a Christian, his perfect record of confident humility and unwavering declaration, that's reckoned to you. That's your record. Thanks be to Jesus who could have bowed down to the devil of hell himself. Matthew chapter 4. Yet he never once bended a knee to a functional savior in order to escape the personal hell of the cross. And if you're a Christian, listen to this, especially if you struggle to believe that Jesus could truly cover all of your sins. If you're a Christian, it's not your sinful moments of bowing to functional saviors that is reckoned to you. It's not. It's Jesus' perfect record of unwillingness to bow that's reckoned to you. Isn't that good news? Thanks be to Jesus who could have suffered poorly, who suffered far more than you and I ever have and probably ever will, yet he endured his suffering sinlessly. If you're a Christian, his perfect record of perseverance and suffering is reckoned to you. He lived a life that we could never live. Every time he didn't bow down, that was for you. And not only that, he died our death. Our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place. He absorbed the 5,000 degree centigrade heat of the fury of God's wrath towards sin. And we are now free to stand in the 5,000 degree centigrade presence of God and not burn up in an instant. No smell of smoke. Rather, we get to stand before him and enjoy making much of him forever. It's pretty amazing when you think about it that what Nebuchadnezzar attempted in Daniel chapter 3, Jesus actually achieved. The reversing of the effects of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Ian Dugid says it this way in his commentary. He says, In the church, God brings glory to his name by saving a hopeless and helpless band of ragtag sinners. In the church, men and women from every tribe and nation and language group come together across social, racial, and ethnic lines as the one new people of God. Together, we stand before the throne of the Lamb, a united multitude from all nations, gathered to sing praises to the God of heaven and earth. No one has to tell us to bow before Christ. It is our joy and delight to throw ourselves down at his pierced feet. The cross is the towering symbol that binds God's empire together as one. What Nebuchadnezzar attempted, Jesus actually achieved. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In a moment, we're gonna take communion. We do so here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Um, as we prepare to receive up the elements, if you are a Christian, um, I would challenge you during this time to ask the Holy Spirit, if he has not already done so, to reveal some things to you diagnostically at a heart level. Do I, do I find my faith is contingent? Wrestle with that question. Do I find that it's contingent upon where the story goes as to whether I truly will trust in, in God? Do I, do I find myself um, moving past verse 18, you might say, to, to the way the story plays out, declaring to God, maybe not in my words, but, but in, in the very belief of my heart, that if you, 
deliver me from the fiery furnace, then you're a God worth following? Or, or is it that no matter how he responds, he's enough? Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.